We continue our study tonight in the subject of redemption accomplished and applied. And uh, I am using the chapters in the book that was written by John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, as an outline for our studies. And so we come tonight to the heading of the necessity of the atonement. The necessity of the atonement. Uh, Before we begin, let's just review kind of the groundwork here. When we're talking about the subject of redemption. Redemption. And when we're talking about redemption, what we're talking about is the deliverance of fallen man from the bondage of sin. The redemption speaks of acquiring something that is rightfully yours. Uh, so the, the idea here is, is as if mankind was, because of the curse of the law and because of the, the wages of sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, that mankind was on the slave market of sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ went down to the auction, as it were, and he, he redeemed, he, he acquired, he purchased a possession, and he bought us off of that slave market. Or to give you a, a more common uh, illustration, it's kind of the idea of redeeming a coupon, for instance. You have in your possession a coupon, and the coupon is just a piece of paper. Uh, but the coupon gives you a promise of some sort of goods uh, at a discounted rate. They aren't the goods themselves, but they're the ticket to the goods. And so you go to the store and you redeem the coupon. You understand the the language. Uh, John Murray said that the language of redemption is the language of purchase. So when you hear the word redemption, I want you to think in your minds of Buying something, purchasing something. A price had to be paid in order for redemption to occur. And we are studying the redemption of sinners under two headings or two facets. And of course, we have redemption accomplished as our first heading. Redemption accomplished. And when we speak of redemption accomplished... What we're referring to is the accomplishment of that purchase. The accomplishment of that purchase. The purchase of redemption was made in a once-for-all transaction. The, the, The purchase of redemption was made in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is when the payment was made. That is when redemption was accomplished. By His finished work on the cross, Jesus purchased His people as His own special possession and paid their sin debt in full. Uh, We have several people in our church that have moved from from, uh, other states. And, you know, I can think of, for instance, Alan and Lori. I know they, they purchased a home sight unseen. They found it online. Well, you could say, well, when did that home become theirs? Well, it wasn't when they actually put all their stuff in a trailer and moved to Tennessee and moved their stuff in. 
it, it became theirs. There's a sense in which it became theirs when they purchased it, when they bought it, uh, when they made the, the payment for the home, even though they had not yet acquired it, right? So redemption was accomplished once and for all, for all of God's people. Everyone who will ever be saved, their redemption was accomplished when Jesus Christ made the purchase of their souls by the price of his own blood on the cross. That's redemption accomplished. But then the second facet is, of course, redemption applied. Redemption applied. And when we speak of redemption applied, we're referring to the acquiring of the purchased possession. The acquiring of the purchased possession. There are sheep for whom Christ has died, both in the world and yet to be born, that have not yet become His through saving faith. They are His because He has purchased them, but they are still, while they are remaining in their state of unbelief, before they come to that moment of saving faith, they have not yet been acquired. Their redemption has been accomplished, but it has not been applied. The benefits of their purchased redemption have not yet been applied to them in time. The the, the redemption has been accomplished, and it has been secured, and all provision has been made, but it has not yet been applied to them in a personal and specific way. Uh, again, the illustration of purchasing a house. Well, if you were to if you were to load all of your stuff up into a trailer and drive across the country and try to move into a house that you have not purchased, it's not going to work very well, is it? I think they call that squatting, right? It's a crime. It's a crime. And let me say to you, let me say to you that God has this is this is perhaps a bit provocative, but God has no right saving any sinner that has not been purchased. He can't do it. He can't do it, not without sacrificing His holiness and His justice and the demands of His righteousness. Right? Mm -hmm. Those who are saved in time, those who, who the Holy Spirit comes to indwell, the Spirit only indwells those who have already been purchased. That's redemption applied. Now, in order to have a robust understanding of salvation and how it is that God saves his people, you must understand these two aspects or phases. I think it's accurate to speak of them as phases of redemption. Because it is true, it is true that you were saved 2,000 years ago when Jesus accomplished your redemption on the cross. That's a true statement. However, that's, that's only one of the two essential true statements. Because if that's the only true statement that you have, then you have uh, done away with the necessity of repentance and faith. And that is the error of hyper-Calvinism that you don't want to commit. And there are some who teach that, that there are people... <laughs> that were saved 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, and they'll never come to repentance and faith, but on the last day, they will go to heaven uh, because Jesus died for them. However, let me, let me make it very clear, the Bible makes it very clear, that everyone uh, for whom Christ has purchased, He will apply that salvation. He will. 
My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. Right? That's a, that's a promise. However, if all you have is the other side of the promise, because it's also true that you were saved the instant that God gave you the gift of faith and you trusted in Christ. And most of the time when people speak of when they were saved, that's what they refer to. And they're not wrong because that is when your redemption was applied in time by the Holy Spirit and you experienced the benefits of what Christ did for you on the cross. It was the moment that you trusted in him. But if you don't understand the accomplishment of redemption, then you cannot explain to me why it was that you trusted in Christ. Why did God give you the gift of faith and repentance and not someone else? What, 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 what causes you to differ? And if you don't understand redemption accomplished, you will be forced to say, well, I don't know. Maybe it's because uh, I make better decisions than other people. Or God forbid, here's the predominant answer in our day. God looked down the corridors of time and he saw some good in me. And so he chose to save me because I was trying really hard and I was living a good life and I was doing my best and I just needed God to help me out a little bit because God helps those who help themselves hogwash. Hogwash. You know, we we looked at John 3.16, the last two sessions, and we looked at all the different categories and we said that that Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ died for all men without distinction. That is, he died for all categories of people. Black, white, yellow, purple with pink spots, if there was such a thing. There's not a, there's not a category of man that Christ did not die for, except for one. There's one category of human beings that Jesus did not die for. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not shed one ounce of his blood for good people. He didn't. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So no, friend, you did not trust in Christ. You did not receive the gifts of faith and repentance because God foresaw some good in you. That is redemption applied. And we must understand those two facets and how they work together. How they work together. Now, when we come tonight to talk about the necessity of the atonement, let's first define what we mean uh, by the word atonement. The word atonement. What do we mean by that word? It, It is a theological word, of course. The word atonement is the accomplishment, or the atonement, is the accomplishment of redemption. So when we talk about redemption accomplished, we're talking about the atonement. You can equate the two. So what is the atonement? What does atonement mean? Atonement is setting at one, or making one, It is reconciling hostile parties. It is removing enmity and creating harmony. That's what atonement is. We see this in the very word. You can see at one meant. At one meant. That is what 
uh, atonement, and that's not the etymology of the word, by the way, uh, but it, you can just kind of see it there, right? The, 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 the idea of atonement is that on the cross, Jesus took holy God in one hand, and he took sinful man in the other hand, and he brought them together in bonds of love by satisfying the demands of God's wrath and the requirement of man to have a perfect, acceptable righteousness. That is what Jesus did when he atoned for us. He atoned for us. So now we need to talk about the necessity of the atonement. And you might be sitting there saying, well, why do we even need to talk about the necessity of the atonement? Uh, if you understand, if you, are, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that you're a sinner and you know that you need a savior. So why do we need to talk about the necessity of the atonement? Because understanding the necessity of the atonement will open up for us uh, the whole doctrine of soteriology because the necessity atonement drives us back to the nature of God himself and his character and the perfections of his being. We saw in John 3.16 that it was because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's because he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John Murray says, quote, The love of God from which the atonement springs is not a distinctionless love. It is a love that elects and predestinates. In our Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter number 1. And what I want you to see is that this atonement that was caused by love, in other words, what we see here is that God's love has a purpose. God's love has a purpose. God's love is not fickle. God does not have the type of love that teenagers have or the kind of love that you see in a, in, in a chick flick, right? It's, God does not have Hallmark movie love. You, we hear people uh, talk about uh, love in such, such silly ways. Well, I fell in love. Um, you know, I, I couldn't help myself. I know they're, that, they're not good for me, but I just fell in love with them. Well, our love is not a perfect love. And sometimes we allow our emotions to control our will, which is something we should never do. Uh, but, brothers and sisters, it's a glorious truth that God's love is not like our love. Our confession states that God is without body, parts, and passions. Now, it might be, it might be really wonderful to, for us to, to say, well, God is passionate about you. But let me say, that's actually a very terrible thing. God is not passionate about you. Because the idea of passion is that emotion has risen to the driver's seat and your passions are controlling you. God's love is not passionate. Not in the proper definition of the word passion. God's love is purposed and settled and determined. And it is unchanging. It is an unchanging love. If God were passionate, if his love was dependent upon changing passions, Paul could not, have, could not say in Romans 8, what shall separate us from the love of God? But do you know how Paul says that? Because God's love is perfect and immutable. Mm -hmm. It's perfect and immutable. And God's love has an eternal purpose. 
Oh, the love of God. Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Notice in verse 3, Paul says, in this blessed benediction, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just, verse 4, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. Now I need to make uh, an important distinction here. Uh, I, uh, I am an advocate for the Greek scriptures, uh, commonly known as the received text, the Textus Receptus. I, in my preaching and teaching, use English versions that are translated from the received text. However, my beloved King James and my beloved New King James, uh, I think that our translators have misplaced a comma in a very significant place here in Ephesians chapter 1. It's actually one of my biggest uh, thorns in the flesh when I'm reading Ephesians chapter 1. Because if you look at, and, and by the way, uh, this is not criticizing the received text at all because uh, when, when the New Testament was written, there were no commas, okay? Commas are a uniquely English innovation. Thank God for them, right? Uh, but um, uh, this is something that our translators have put in. If you look at verse 4, Notice where the comma is at the end of the verse. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that is, our glorious truth of, of, of God's election, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, comma. That comma placed right there would indicate to us that God's purpose in, in electing us was that we would be before him in love. However, if you look at at this verse, in its original, I believe that that comma is two words too late. Because the emphasis is not that God's purpose is for us to be before Him in love, though there's truth there. The emphasis is that it was His loving purpose that predestinated us in Christ. Look at verse 4. Let me, let me read it with the comma in the right place. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, comma, in love having predestinated us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. You see, so when you think of the doctrine of election, so many people want to paint the doctrine of election as this cold and callous doctrine that will just kill your zeal and turn you into the frozen chosen. But there could be nothing, brothers and sisters, that could warm your heart more than grabbing a hold of the truth that God saw you fallen in Adam, hopelessly damned for eternity with no ability to save yourself. Not only were you damned and helpless, you were loving it. You were not on earth praying, oh God, send me a Savior. I can't save myself. Send me a Savior. You were chasing after your sins and you were drinking iniquity like it was tap water. That's how God saw you. When a love that was within himself for no good that you could do for him, nothing you could offer him, no glory you could add to him, just for the simple fact that he is love. That is who he is. That love 
ordered the divine decree and it caused God in love to predestine you to be a son through the adoption by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. In theology, in systematic theology, a lot of what the theologian is doing is he's answering questions. He's answering questions. If this is true, what must be true? And if that is true, then this must be true. And if this is true, then that is true. And when you start to ask questions about the eternal will of God and the pleasures of God, you will eventually run into a wall. You will run into a question that you will not be able to answer. And that question, that question is, why did God love us? Why did he love us? If you were to ask me, why did he give me the gifts of faith and repentance? I could tell you because Jesus Christ has purchased us on the cross. Why did Jesus Christ purchase us on the cross? Well, because uh, before the foundation of the world, God issued the decree to save his people through the atonement of his son. Well, why did God do that? Well, because he loved his people. Why did he love them? Because he loves them. And he says that to Israel. I think it's Deuteronomy 7. He says, I did not choose you or set my love upon you because you were the greatest nation, but because I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. Why does God love us? Because he loves us. And we marvel and worship at that truth. The sovereign, unrestrained, unmerited, unbridled love of God that causes God to initiate the redemption of his people. So you see that there in Ephesians chapter 1, that the love of God has a purpose. And that purpose was to, out of this mass of fallen humanity, that purpose was to save a, a peculiar possession that would be, that would be especially uh, the people of Christ who would for all eternity give him worship and adoration. That was the purpose of God's love. Um, it's a humbling thought and a, an amazing thought to think of yourself as the Father's love gift to the Son. It was as if, it was as if, um, it was as if God the Father took these, these sinners, which is an innumerable multitude. When you think, when you think about the doctrine of election, don't think, don't think that it's just some small, minute remnant. Some people say. Well, God saved a handful, yes, but whose hand are we talking about? The Bible says it's a number which no man can number. It's an innumerable multitude. And God took this, this people group and he said, Son, because I love you so much, I'm going to give you this people group. I'm going to give you this people group. And uh, you, think of the, you think of the scene, you know, where you have, where you have the, this, this little girl and she has this baby doll and she's had it for years, and she's she's I mean she's run it through the mud, and it's I mean it, the the paint is falling off. You know, it's that baby doll that half the hair has been pulled out. It might be missing an appendage, you know. But she has this special attachment to this baby doll, and she holds this baby doll, and she says, "Look how beautiful this baby doll is." And God the Father took this motley crew of wretched sinners and gave them to the Son, and the Son saw us as we would be with Him. And he said to the father, she is beautiful. She's beautiful. Not naturally, but she's beautiful because I'm going to wash her 
and sanctify her and cleanse her. Ephesians 5, verse 25, 26, 27. That I might present her to myself as a spotless bride. That's what's going on here in Ephesians 1. That's the beginning of, of what we see accomplished in Ephesians 5. It's a beautiful, beautiful narrative. So the love of God is the cause or the source of the atonement, but this does not answer the question as to its reason or its necessity. When we talk about the necessity of the atonement, uh, we're talking about the peculiars of how God accomplished this decree. And there's essentially two views on the necessity of the atonement. The first is the view of hypothetical necessity. Hypothetical necessity. And this was the view that was held by Augustine, and it was held by Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and then the second view, a little longer, so I, I better start it over here on our board, but it's the view of consequent absolute necessity. Consequent absolute necessity. If you, if you uh, are taking notes, you can just do HN for hypothetical necessity and CAN for consequent absolute necessity. And it is consequent absolute necessity that is the classic Protestant or Reformed uh, position. Hypothetical necessity teaches that God could have forgiven sin and saved his people without the atonement, but that he chose the atonement instead because it is the supreme demonstration of his grace. In other words, there was nothing inherent in the nature of God or in the nature of the atonement, and we know what the atonement is, right? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Nothing inherent in that that made it necessary, but rather kind of like God surveyed the options, and he chose that option because it was the best option, right? That's, that's kind of the, the explanation there, right? There's nothing inherent in the nature of God or the nature of redemption that makes the atonement necessary and the blood shedding of Christ indispensable. That's hypothetical necessity. Now, consequent absolute necessity. This teaches that the atonement must have happened, must have happened, and it must have happened this way, the way in which it occurred. That all of the details, the son's incarnation, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his death on the cross, his, the shedding of his blood, his burial in a borrowed tomb, his resurrection on the third day, his ascension into heaven, his present intercession at the right hand of the Father for us, all of that is necessary, inherently necessary. That's consequent absolute necessity. Uh, so let's break this down, because these are some, some bigger words. What, what do we mean when we talk about consequent absolute necessity? Well, Firstly, we have this, this idea that the atonement has a consequent necessity. And you see in this word, uh, the word consequence. So that, that carries with it the idea that the atonement is necessary because it is a consequence of something, right? God's decree to save, God's decree to save, what we've just looked at, that choice he made to set his love upon a people is a free and sovereign grace. God was under no compulsion or any obligation to save anyone. 
And may we remember that, uh, lest we accuse God of, of being unfair. Uh, if we were to go down, if you were to go down to the orphanage and you were to adopt a child, no human being in their right mind would, would accuse you of injustice because you didn't adopt all of them. No one. What would they say? Wow, what a gracious, merciful, kind, compassionate thing to do that you would adopt anyone. You weren't under the obligation to do that. Well, God was not under the obligation to save any of us. Salvation, then, is not of absolute necessity. God does not save out of necessity. But God saves of the pleasure of his will and the pleasure of his love, right? We've seen that. So in this way, the atonement is only consequently necessary because of the free and sovereign choice to save sinners. But we also understand the atonement to have an absolute necessity, a consequent absolute necessity. Now, at first, these terms seem like a contradiction, right? How can something be consequent and absolute at the same time? Well, because when we look at absolute necessity... Having freely chosen to save sinners, God placed himself under the necessity to accomplish their salvation through the sacrifice of his own son. God God limits himself by his own decree. The necessity arises from the perfections of his own nature and the nature of redemption. The question is this, brothers and sisters, the question is this. And this is the question that we will seek to answer. Does Scripture teach that God cannot save sinners apart from the bloody, substitutionary, sacrificial death of His Son? Consequent absolute necessity says yes. It says that it is impossible for God to save His people apart from the death of His Son. Now, for those of us who affirm the exhaustive sovereignty of God in all things, the idea that there are things that God cannot do may initially seem inconsistent with what we believe about who He is. Don't, do you not have, you, you, you should have a knee jerk reaction if someone says, Well, God cannot do this. Your initial reaction should be, what do you mean God cannot do this? God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. However, God himself reveals to us in his word what John Murray calls divine cannots, things he cannot do. Hebrews 6 verse 18, the Bible says God cannot lie. Um, We see Malachi 3 and verse 6. God cannot change. We see in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13, God cannot deny himself. So there are these divine cannots in the word of God. And these divine cannots do not reveal any deficiency in God. Rather, they reveal the perfections of and glory of his nature. You understand what I mean by that? It's hard for us, with our finite minds, our unrenewed minds, 
the minds that are still associated with our flesh that is waiting its full redemption. It's hard for us to even fathom a being that doesn't even have the capacity to lie. Doesn't even have the capacity to change. The immutability of God, which by the way, is a doctrine under attack in our day. Subtly and not so subtly. The idea that God does not change. Circumstances around him change, his people change, but he does not change. There's no change within himself. It's the doctrine of immutability. That God cannot sin. Fathom the thought. You can't fathom the thought. That God does not have the capacity to sin. God cannot look upon sin. I can't behold it, he says in his word. I can't even look upon it. I can't even allow it into my presence. This is a a holiness and a purity that we struggle to wrap our little human brains around. But yet, this is the truth of our God. So what we're seeking to answer in the study of the atonement's necessity is this. Is redeeming sinners, apart from the atonement of Christ, a divine cannot? Now, I know that this is weightier stuff. That we're, 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 we're looking into the deeper things of God and we're, we're looking into the, the inner workings of how he's accomplished the salvation of his people. And I am purposed to make these sessions. Number one, this is still a prayer meeting and we want to still devote our time to prayer. Uh, and and I, I am de- determined to make these sessions a bit shorter than what we might typically do so that we can really meditate upon these things. I have eight portions of scripture and there, there are more, but I have eight portions of Scripture that indicate the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. And we'll look at those next time. We'll look at those next time. Um, they're all in the same outline. They're all in the same heading of my notes. But as I was getting through this, I thought, well, I could rush through this or we could take our time. And We're not in a race. We're not in a race. We want to to meditate upon these things and to, to think upon these things and to, to come out on the other side loving these things. What this study is, you say, wow, what is the, what is the point of this? Have consequent absolute necessity, atonement, a redemption. What's the point of this? The point of this is for you to understand what God has done for you. What he's done for you. God's love and purpose in your life did not begin the the moment that you believed for the very first time. But the moment that you believed for the very first time was the fruition of an eternal love that had been set upon you and purposed to, to accomplish your salvation before you were ever even born. And when we see that, how much deeper is our worship? How much deeper is our worship? So... May God help us. May God help us as we continue studying these things. And next time we gather together, we'll look scripturally at a defense of the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement.